Right, well, thank you all for coming. Uh, we can start, more or less. Um, my name's Toby Dodge. I um, am the uh, director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. Um, the meeting uh, will run from 6.30 uh, till 8 o'clock, and uh, as we've just found out, is on the record, if you're happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a podcast being made, and we don't have a microphone to roam around with, so when it comes to questions, just shout out, and uh, the mic will pick it up. Um, can you turn off your phones, as I've just done, uh, so they don't interrupt anything? Um, our speaker, who I'll introduce in a minute, has agreed to speak between, let's say, 45 minutes, uh, certainly 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and the meeting will close at 8 o'clock. Stephen Lacroix, I would have thought, needs no introduction. Uh, but for those of you who don't know who he is, he's an associate professor at Sciences Po in Paris. His research focuses on political authoritarianism and resistance it generates, social movements and the links between Islam and politics in contemporary times. He's worked very uh, interestingly on Saudi Arabia uh, and now on Egypt. He's, uh, his, the title of his talk is uh, Being Salafi Under Sisi, the Strategy of the Egyptian Al-Nur Party. And then he's going to sum up at the end with some discussions on revolutionary Salafism. Uh, without further ado, take it away. Thank you very much. And thanks to uh, the LSE for inviting me again. I've been here a couple of years ago. Uh, I already talked about Egyptian Salafism, so I hope some of you have... Uh, well, if you've been here, I really try to say something new. But uh, uh, there will be a few... In- introductory elements that will be similar because I have to present the actors at least so I'm sorry for those who were here two years ago <laughs> you're going to hear a little bit of the same and many new things as well um, so um, as um, uh, Professor Dodge said I, I'm, I'm, I'll be focusing on uh, on Hezbollah Noor um, but then I thought it would be interesting also to uh, talk about the other side of Salafism um, and I think it's actually very relevant to many of what's many of the things we're witnessing today in Egypt, so I'll uh, start with Hezbollah Noor and then uh, look at something a bit different. Um, so, as you all know, on the third of July, two thousand and thirteen, uh, General Sisi—he was not yet Field Marshal uh, in um, July two thousand and thirteen—announced uh, the deposition of Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, the adoption of a roadmap uh, which would uh, lead to new elections, right? And uh, if you remember that speech, and I'm sure some of you have seen it, uh, when General Sisi is speaking, uh, behind him are sitting an assembly of institutional figures and uh, politicians. Um, among those figures, of course, are Sheikh Al-Azhar, Ahmed Al-Tayyib, uh, the Pope, the Coptic Pope Tawadros, uh, Mohammed al-Baradei, representing the liberal current, uh, Mahmoud Badr from the Tamarud movement, and uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, as some considered at the time, uh, the leader of the Salafi Noor party, Yunus Mahyoun. Um, and uh, in the wake of the 3rd of July, uh, the Salafi Noor party really much continued on the same line. That is, first, they backed the deposition of Morsi, and then they took part in the writing of the new constitution. Uh, one of the uh, new party members was part of the Constitutional Assembly. Um, they called for a yes vote to the constitution and they campaigned for it. And eventually they decided to back uh, 
General Sisi, who in the meantime had become field marshal, uh, Sisi's uh, candidacy to the uh, Egyptian presidency. So um, this, I think, uh, and actually, again, for, for uh, the, the Sisi campaign, Hezbollah was quite active. They organized campaign events uh, in favor of Sisi. Uh, I think we can ask three questions based on this, right? Uh, the first, of course, is why did Hezbollah do this? And especially uh, as Hezbollah is an Islamist party, quote-unquote, right? We'll see what we put in the term Islamist, but it's, at least that's the way people see it. Um, and it's the only Islamist party that uh, took that decision. All the other Islamist parties were on the Muslim Brotherhood side. Um, so why did they do this first? What consequences did that have for the Noor party? And finally, what consequences did that have for the broader Salafi movement? Those are the three questions I will be looking at. So first, why did the Salafi Noor party decide to take that controversial move? And uh, if you ask that question to, if I ask that question to many of my Egyptian friends, uh, they would answer with three different answers. These are the ones I've heard uh, the most. The first answer you'd get is, well, the Salafis are a proxy of Saudi Arabia. You know, this is the way people tend to look at them. And so, of course, it makes perfect sense because Saudi Arabia was very opposed to President Morsi. Saudi Arabia was very favorable to him being deposed. Saudi Arabia was very much in line with the coalition of institutions and political groups that deposed President Morsi. So Hezbollah just you know, did what the Saudis told them to do. Um, I would, of course, uh, argue that uh, things are much more complex, I think. Uh, and uh, if you um, go back to the, the history of the, the, the Dawah Salafiyah, which is the group uh, the religious organization from which Hezbollah emerged, right? And the Dawah Salafiyah, we'll talk about it in a minute, um, was founded in the late 1970s. It's a group that's been around for 35 years, and that is the group that eventually created the No Party. But if you uh, look at the relationship that Dawah Salafiyah historically had with uh, Saudi Arabia, it's not a patron-client relationship. Um, the Salafi Dawah was probably much too activist. It was... Uh, much too organized for the Saudis. I don't think that the Saudis really like the kind of, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, mass Salafi politics that the Salafi Dawah was trying to create in Egypt. But the Saudis had their own proxy in Egypt, right? It's called Ansar al-Sunnah Muhammadiyah. It's an old Salafi association which goes back to the 1920s and which has been a close partner of Saudi Arabia for the last 80 years. So this is the group that the Saudis would be in touch with. But the Dawah, the Salafi Dawah, was different. Its members, when they created it, by the way, had not been to Saudi Arabia, most of them. Um, they did go to Saudi Arabia, but their ties to the Saudi regime were, to me, very unclear, and I think, um, I mean, largely non-existent. And I would even argue that I don't think Saudi Arabia was really happy when they created the No Party, because you can imagine from a Saudi standpoint that seeing Salafis create political parties is not good news, because it means that your own Salafis at some point may want to create political parties. So my guess is that the Saudis had little to do with all of this. Uh, I'm not saying that certain individuals in Saudi Arabia would not be favorable to the Dawah Salafia or to Hezbollah. There may have been private links. But when it comes to the Saudi government, uh, I don't think Hezbollah or the Dawah Salafia were ever a proxy of the Saudi government. 
Uh, I mean, if you're looking for uh, the Saudi government's partner in, in, in Egypt, you have to look at the Egyptian army. Those are the guys who are most annoyed with the Saudi government. Uh, not, again, Hezbollah. I mean, this is a big discussion, and, and I don't want to go into this. But um, there's generally this, this view that Saudi Arabia supports Salafi movement abroad, right, as a government. I think that actually if you look at the, this very complex relationship between politics and religion in Saudi Arabia, between the royal family on the one hand and the religious establishment on the other hand, you'll find out that something more complicated. The Saudi religious establishment does support Salafi movement abroad. But the Saudi religious establishment is not the royal family, right? You have this kind of partnership between them, which is a, a, you know, a, a mutually beneficial relationship but one that also creates some kind of autonomy for actors. So the Saudi religious establishment may have its own strategies that do not necessarily reflect exactly the regime strategy. Okay? So that's a broader, I think, uh, 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 comment on Saudi religious policy. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, right? If you are looking for the regimes, the Saudi regime's allies in the region, those are mostly armies and regimes. The Saudis are very conservative when it comes to their politics. And they're really happy with the status quo. And they've always been very supportive of pro-status quo governments, right? So again, that's not, that's a bit of a, 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 a footnote to the talk. But uh, again, let's not see necessarily Salafi parties. And in this case, has been more just through the eyes of some kind of grand Saudi master plan. Um, the second explanation you'd get when you'd ask uh, uh, why uh, Hezbollah Noor took that decision, people would tell you, oh, you know, Hezbollah Noor, they, they have very close links to the, to the Egyptian security apparatus. That's also something you hear, Amidola, right, you know. Uh, also, of course, they have close links to the security apparatus. And of course, the security apparatus was very opposed to Mohammed Morsi and was instrumental in his deposition. So, of course, then the Salafis would take that stance. Again, uh, this to me is only part of the story. The Salafis did have links to the security apparatus, for sure, in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and we'll go back to this again. They certainly were instrumentalized to some extent by the security apparatus. At the same time, the, 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 the Salafis were not the only ones to have linked to the security apparatus. I mean, in an authoritarian regime, the rules of the game is that everybody has to have links with the security apparatus. I mean, to some extent, the same case was made against the Muslim Brotherhood back in 2011. I remember when a lot of uh, state security documents came out about meetings between senior Brotherhood officials and members of the security apparatus, arguing that, oh, Khairat al-Shadr had met with Habib al-Adli, and they were discussing elections, and they were discussing... Well, of course, that's the rules of the game if you want to be tolerated and exist in an authoritarian system. Every two months, you'd be summoned at the state security, and state security will ask you, what are you up to? Well, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. So in a sense, the Salafis were not that exceptional when it comes to their relationship to the security apparatus. And again, I wouldn't uh, think that this is an explanation for what they did. Uh, they do have links, they talk to the security apparatus for sure, but that doesn't make them agents or proxies of the security apparatus. The third explanation you get um, uh, when you ask why Hezbollah Noor did what they did, they're opportunists, people would say. Right? Uh, you know, they just side with the strongest camp. I think maybe you know, there's some truth to this as well. But at the same time, it's actually quite logical when you look at what Hezbollah Noor has been doing since they started in 2011. And I would even say more, you know, not just the politics of Hezbollah Noor, but the very conception of politics that Hezbollah Noor harbors. I think it's pretty logic 
when you look at their conception of politics and why they did enter into politics. So, um, and to put it bluntly, I would say that uh, there was probably a mischaracterization of Hizb al-Nur when Hizb al-Nur was created in June 2011, right? That the term, people described them as an Islamist party. That's why I, I did quote-unquote when I said Islamist at the beginning. Uh, and, you know, the, gen- the, 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 you know, the general view was that, you know, Hizb al-Nur was just a Salafi version of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, before you had one version of Islamism competing. Now you have two versions of Islamism competing. What I would think is that it was never the case. And it was never meant to be the case. Uh, but to make this clear, uh, let's, let me just give a few words of introduction on the Salafi Dawah, on the Dawah Salafiyah, which is the religious organization from which uh, Hizb al-Nur emerged. And, and then the creation of Hizb al-Nur, to show you why the Dawah Salafiyah decided that it needed to create Hizb al-Nur. So, as I said, the Dawah Salafiyah, the Salafi Dawah, was founded in, in, in 1977-1978. It was founded by uh, students who were members at the time of the Gamat Islamiyah, those uh, Islamic student groups on university campuses in Egypt. And uh, those were people who were based in Alexandria. All of them came from one faculty, actually, of Alexandria University. The founders of the Dawah Salafiyah were all students of medicine in Alexandria. For, uh, that may be a coincidence. And one was engineering, you're right. But the, the, the core group was, was, was people who were studying medicine. But one was studying engineering. Right, 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 right. But what I'm saying, I mean, the core group that founded that was just five of them. Doctors and one engineer. You're absolutely right. Um, and those are people, uh, this was the time when, when the Gamat Islamiyah decided to join the Muslim Brotherhood, and people who were in the Gamat Islamiyah at the time became uh, big figures in the Muslim Brotherhood, Abdel Munim Abdel Futur, Isam al Aryan, you know, all these who would later become big names in the Muslim Brotherhood came from the same uh, student milieu. But those, this group of students of the Faculty of Medicine in Alexandria decided that they would not join the Muslim Brotherhood, that they disagreed with the politics of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that instead, what they considered to be the priority was to create a preaching group whose goal was to preach Salafi Islam, true Islam, to society. And for the next 30 years or so, this is what the Dawah Salafiyah would do. They would preach. And, um, and they would avoid politics altogether, right? This was not part of their mission. Their mission was to preach the correct Salafi creed. So avoiding politics meant that they would not take political stances. They would talk about politics privately, but they wouldn't make... Uh, uh, you know, they wouldn't talk about politics in their public events, so they would completely try to avoid the subject of politics. And obviously they would not join party politics. They never considered forming a political party. Um, Their project was to impulse uh, what I would call some kind of, you know, bottom-up reform of Egyptian society, right, starting from the grassroots, by spreading the true Salafi creed to individuals. So it was, you know, this idea of forming a Salafi individual to reform society from below. Uh, Their sermons and their preaching focused on the main Salafi themes. Uh, Of course,
course, the fight against deviant creeds, right? And of course, deviant creeds may be deviant creeds within Islam, so they would uh, preach against Shi'is and Sufis, right? Which they would see as being deviant from uh, uh, true Salafi Islam. They would also preach against Western-inspired ideologies. They would preach against democracy. They would preach against Al-Masuniya, uh, uh, or, you know, the, the Masonic ideologies and all these, you know, they would write books about, about this, for instance. Um, by considering that all of these are deviant creeds, and there's only one proper creed for the Muslim, which is the Salafi creed. What they could also do, of course, is that they would call f- uh, for Muslims to adopt uh, 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 certain social and religious practices, which we may characterize as ultra-conservative, but which the Salafis see as uh, being the proper Islamic practices inspired from the example of Prophet Muhammad and the early Muslims. Right? So this would basically be their message, a message that was not political. Um, arguably, you could say that this kind of this bottom-up approach was also uh, the approach of the Muslim Brotherhood at the beginning, right? If you go back to the, to the beginnings of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928, it was all about this kind of bottom-up logic, right? The uh, create the Muslim individual first, and then the Muslim Brotherhood family, the Muslim family, sorry, then the Muslim society, but eventually the Islamic State. And I think that this is what the Muslim Brotherhood was somehow more political from the beginning, right? The Muslim Brotherhood from the beginning had this notion that at the top of the pyramid was the Islamic State. Of course, this also had to do with, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood created four years after the uh, abolition of the Caliphate by Ataturk. So this idea of recreating a Muslim political system was very present, right? And from the beginning, politics was very much part of, of what Muslim Brotherhood preached. It was very much part of what the Muslim Brotherhood did. Remember that uh, Hassan al-Banna back in the days, he himself went for parliament in the 1940s in Egypt. So the Muslim Brotherhood have been political for a long time. Of course, in the 1980s, the Muslim Brotherhood would develop that rhetoric even further by trying to present themselves more and more as a party of government, a party that aims to govern the country, right? So I think this kind of, although the beginnings of the Muslim Brotherhood may have the same kind of bottom-up approach, the Muslim Brotherhood quickly complemented that approach with some kind of top-bottom approach, right? Through politics and through the states. It was never the case for the Salafis who remained pretty faithful to their initial um, you know, kind of Islamicization from below approach, right? Um, that was the first difference, of course. The second difference between the, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and, the, and the Salafis, and, and that would be also one of the themes of the, the Salafi sermons, uh, is this notion of creedal orthodoxy. The Salafis are all about this notion of the orthodoxy of the creed. There's one proper way of being Muslim, there's one proper way of believing, and there's one proper way of acting. When you look at the Muslim Brotherhood, it was never something that was really uh, important to them, right? The Muslim Brotherhood were trying to preach a broad conservative outlook, but one that within this broad conservative outlook, you know, was ready to acknowledge certain religious differences, right? The Muslim Brotherhood were never really interested in Sunni-Shia polemics as opposed to the Salafis. The Muslim Brotherhood were also... uh, not very interested in anti-Sufi polemics, and uh, Hassan al-Banna himself was a Sufi. So uh, this has changed recently, by the way, and, and that's one of the effects of Salafism on the Muslim Brotherhood's discourse. But if you go back to what the Salafi, the Muslim Brotherhood were at the beginning, it was a political project, more than it was a religious project. What I'm trying to argue is that the Salafi project was a religious project and not a political project, if, if you, you know, want to make things clear. Um, so 
this proclaimed apolitical stance of the Dawah Salafiya, of course, uh, served them quite well during the Mubarak years. And uh, the security apparatus certainly saw them as a lesser evil in comparison with the Muslim Brotherhood, right? The Muslim Brotherhood want power. They are a competitor for power. The Salafis were not. The Salafis were uh, just preaching conservative or ultra-conservative Islam. So at some point, certainly the security apparatus would kind of you know, be more benevolent to the Salafis, right? Believing that in the end, if people are going to be conservative, let them be conservative the Salafi way because it's less harmful for the regime than, than being conservative the Muslim Brotherhood way. Uh, by the way, going back to my earlier argument, that doesn't mean that the Salafis didn't get in trouble. They actually did get in trouble as well under Mubarak. And uh, all the leaders of the Salafi Dawah have been in prison under Mubarak. So you can see that it was a strategy of playing certain groups against other groups. It was not really support for one group. Right. So again, uh, let's have a more complex view of this, you know, these kind of religious strategies of authoritarian regimes. And, and this applies quite well to the Salafis. Uh, but still, you know, this kind of more benevolent attitude of the security apparatus towards the Salafis was certainly useful. And it certainly opened some spaces for them, which the Salafis were quite happy to use for their purpose. And it certainly explains the growth of the Salafi Dawah uh, during the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And the movement became quite significant by the time the Egyptian revolution happened. And it, by then it had moved to other regions of Egypt, although the center was Alexandria. By 2011, they had branches and people throughout the country. Um, when the revolution happened uh, in 2011, the Salafi Dawah reacted as it was expected from them. Right? What they did was uh, that uh, they uh, didn't take part. They didn't believe that change could come through politics. For them, change had to come from below first. Right? And so for them, politics could not be a way to change. So they were not really interested in the revolution. What they did was mostly to try to protect their neighborhoods where they were present, right? They created uh, self-defense militias against thugs. This is the biggest contribution to the revolution. And uh, they were quite skeptical about what was happening. They, you know, they, they, they really waited until the last moment to take sides. When they understood that the revolution was over, uh, then they decided to side with the revolution. But it took them uh, uh, 15 days out of 18 to, to take a pro-revolution stance. The major shift, however, happened in the spring 2011, because then members of the Salafi Dawah announced that they were about to form a political party. This was a complete break from what they had done before. And at the time, everybody was surprised that Salafis would be willing to join politics. And uh, in June 2011, Hezbollah Noor was formally announced, the Noor Party. Uh, of course, they took the name the Noor Party because the law that was forbidding parties based on religious ground was still in place. So they couldn't call themselves the Salafi Party. So they took Noor light as a reference to Salafi Islam without really saying it because they couldn't. Um, it was not the only Salafi party created at the time. Some smaller groups also created parties. But uh, the Salafi Noor party was the biggest one. It was the biggest one and the most influential one because it has the backing of the biggest Salafi religious organization, the Dawah Salafiyah. So, you know, Let's go back to the uh, uh, mischaracterization I've talked about before, right? Why uh, has the Noor not an Islamist party as, uh, 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 as the Muslim Brotherhood would be? And uh, what I'm trying to say is that I, 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 I would, again, to put things pretty bluntly, I would say that Hezbollah never really believed in politics. 
they never really wanted to govern and become state actors like the Muslim Brotherhood did. I'm not saying that this was everyone's view in Hezbollah Noor, but this ended up being the dominant view. Um, the aim of the new party was to become a lobby within the political field in order to protect and expand the interest of what remained, first and foremost, a preaching movement. And the reason why the new party was created is that the leaders of the Salafi Dawah uh, understood that in the post-revolution period, they needed to have someone to represent them in the political field in order to defend and expand their interests. So this was a lobby, if you want to characterize it, or an interest group in some way, to, again, more than it was uh, a traditional Islamist political party. If, if you, I mean, I'm not going to expand on that comparison, but if you look at the Salafis in Kuwait, I think there's a lot, of, lot in common with the Salafi politics in Kuwait and the way Hezbollah Noor has been conceiving of politics. This, 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 this conception of politics of Hezbollah Noor uh, had two consequences. The first one was that Hezbollah Noor was very flexible in its alliances. Because each time, the alliances were driven by a simple calculation how to protect and expand the Dawah's preaching base. How many mosques will I lose? How many mosques will I win? Depending on who I'll ally with and what kind of political stance I take. And so, when, you know, when the context and the perceived interest of the Salafi Dawah would change, the Salafi alliances would change as well. This is the first uh, main consequence. The second consequence is that the greatest adversary for the Muslim Brotherhood were none other, uh, for the Salafis, sorry, of the Salafi Dawah and Hezbollah Noor, were none other but the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Uh, because, of course, we, you know, let's be clear, I've said that at the beginning, uh, first and foremost, the Salafis considered the Muslim Brotherhood to have a deviant creed. They considered that the Muslim Brotherhood are not uh, Salafis. They don't believe in, in the right things. One of the things that would be constantly reproached the Muslim Brotherhood was their uh, supposedly too lenient attitudes toward the Shia. That would be something that would come up in the discourse very much under Morsi, especially after Morsi. You remember went to Iran and then Ahmadinejad was invited to Cairo. This would become one of the main Salafi themes against the Muslim Brotherhood. They're not taking a stance, uh, a strong enough stance against Iran and against, uh, of course, the Shiite influence that the Salafis consider comes with Iran. Um, but um, but most importantly, I think, uh, the Salafis see the Muslim Brotherhood as their most dangerous competitor because it's a competitor in the preaching sphere as well. That is a competitor that is aiming exactly at what the Salafis consider to be their existential domain, right? So in the end, the struggle for the preaching domain was what made the Salafis and the Muslim Brotherhood irreconcilable enemies. And for that reason, if you look at the whole new strategy from 2012, it was aimed against the Muslim Brotherhood. And you can read everything that they did. At the beginning, the aim was to prevent the Muslim Brotherhood from getting to power. And then when the Muslim Brotherhood were in power, the aim was to get them out of power. Um, the only moment when the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis came together was quite short-lived. It's, you know, it was two months, basically. It was during the Constitution, under Morsi, when uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis agreed for a more Islamic constitution. Of course, the Salafis wouldn't be against more Sharia in the constitution, so on that point, there was an agreement. But as soon as the constitution was passed, the Salafis became the opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood again. And so you can read every of the, each of their moves through that lenses, right? In the presidential election, the Salafis decide to support Abdel Munim Abdel Futuh. Abdel Munim Abdel Futuh is a moderate Islamist, if you, as it was described at the time. He's on the left of the Muslim Brotherhood. So why would Salafis support someone on the left of the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, they would do so because they don't want to support the Muslim Brotherhood. And the only other available 
candidate who can call himself an Islamist. Is that Futur? So in that sense, it was more a default choice. Uh, their base would never accept that they would call to vote for a non-Islamic candidate. So the only one left was Abu Futur. But the aim was mostly not to support Morsi. Once Morsi was in power, as I said, they were against Morsi. And in the wake of the constitution vote in January 2013, they got closer and closer to the liberals. And you have a lot of meetings happening in the spring 2013 between the National Salvation Front and leaders of Hezbollah. Nur. Again, because they have one common enemy. At the time, the whole rhetoric in Egypt is about Akhwanat al-Dawla, the Ikhwanization or the brotherhoodization of the Egyptian state. And the Salafis actually uh, used those same words to denounce the hegemonic tendencies of the brotherhoods. Their main concern is actually not so much the brotherhoodization of the Egyptian state. It's the brotherhoodization of Wazarat al-Awqaf, the Ministry of Islamic Affairs. What they're really worried is that the Muslim Brotherhood would use their position at the head of the Egyptian state to try to control the Ministry of Religious Affairs and impose Muslim Brotherhood preachers in the different mosques of the country, which would diminish uh, the influence and the presence of the Salafi Dawah. So for them, again, it was an existential threat. Uh, of course, their last dance would be to support General Sisi and the military takeover on the 3rd of July. Again, you know, you can read this through the same lenses. Uh, and, and, in a, and in a sense, for the Salafis, uh, the, the army is a much better ally than the Muslim Brotherhood. Why? Because the army has no claim on the preaching sphere. So for the Salafis, it would be the perfect alliance. I mean, you know, it would be, in a sense, you know, they would dream of some... Uh, Sudanese slash Pakistani model. You see, it was, you know, Hassan al-Turabi and Omar al-Bashir in 1989, the army takes politics and the Salafis become in charge of social control through religion. Uh, in Pakistan in the 80s, Ziaul Haq, same story, right? You have a military regime and a number of Islamist allies. And again, the military is in charge of politics and uh, the Islamist allies in charge of society. So somehow, I would imagine that is why the... Uh, that is what the Salafis of Hezbollah had in mind, what they were hoping for when uh, they, uh, they decided to back the military takeover. But uh, have they obtained what they wanted? Uh, and then what consequences did this have on Noor and the broader Salafi movement? Well, I would say that they didn't obtain what they wanted. They were actually quite disappointed with what they eventually got. Uh, I think they didn't understand how statist the new regime was going to be. And, I mean, if there's one ideological feature of the Sisi regime, it's statism. It's all about the state. It's all about Haybat al-Dawla, restoring the prestige of the state, restoring the authority of the state on every domain. I mean, again, if there's one ideology to the, to the Sisi regime, this is the one. And so, of course, the Sisi regime would not be willing to let private religious actors control the religious sphere. So what the regime did was to use the state religious actor, which is al-Azhar, right, in order to regain control of the religious domain, which would lead actually to conflict between the Salafis and al-Azhar, and al-Azhar in the conflicts having the backing of the states. So al-Azhar would take a number of measures to actually reduce the importance of the Salafis. Huh? You, one of them was a law that uh, uh, forced uh, uh, preachers uh, to have uh, studied at al-Azhar. Only Azharis can preach in the mosques. Most of the Salafis have not studied at al-Azhar. So for them, it was a way to keep them out of the mosques. Then, you know, the Salafis said that this was unjust, and so the ministry said, well, you can get a license, but you have to pass an exam. So some of the main Salafi sheikhs actually had to pass an exam 
account of uh, Al-Azhar in order to get the right to preach, which was pretty humiliating for people who've been, st- who've been preaching for 30 years. Some of them got some kind of wasta and were able to avoid the exam. Uh, but some of them had to go for the exam. So, um, so, so in the end, the Salafis have found themselves you know, with somehow of a, you know, another strong competitor in the religious field, this time Al-Azhar. And we cannot really say that they have gained much influence or much presence based on the stance that they took. And I would actually say that today their position is rather precarious. I think there's a debate within the CC regime today in Egypt as, what, as to what to do with the Salafis, what to do with Hizban Nur. I think there's, there's one, you know, the liberal group within the CC regime says, you know, they are an Islamist party, they are a religious party, so let's just ban them. You know, they, we did it with all the others, why should we make an exception for Hezbollah Nur? And there's actually a, 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 you know, a, a case in front of the, of the courts that is going to be settled in June on the legality of Hezbollah Nur, on the 5th of June, because some people came to the courts and said, well, they are a religious party. Religious parties are banned by law. So the Senate said, no, 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 we're not a religious party. So the whole case is about whether Hezbollah Nur is a religious party. Hezbollah Nur has been trying hard to say they were not a religious party, to the point of saying that they would include Christians on their list for the next parliamentary elections, because they're trying to say we are not a religious party. But again, we're going to see, of course, as you know, the courts are not that independent from politics. So I imagine that the June decision will very much be, again, you know, show you where the wind is blowing, between the faction that wants to push uh, the anti-Islamist politics further, and then Hezbollah Nur, and the faction that believes that Hezbollah Nur can still be useful to the regime. In the end, you know, there's going to be conservative votes, and it's going to have a conservative party represented in the election. So if people want to vote for a conservative party next time, let them vote for Hezbollah Nur. So again, I think there are two tendencies in the regime, and I think this, this court decision, early June, will be, very good, will be a good sign of where the wind is blowing for Hezbollah Nur. But... Um, so, so, so this is quite problematic. I mean, the Salafis have not obtained what they wanted of Hezbollah Nur. But what is even more problematic is that this had consequences on no party. Because uh, obviously the decision to back uh, the, uh, uh, the position of Morsi and then the decision to back the constitution and then to back General Sisi was not very popular with the base of Hezbollah Nur. Uh, what I'm talking about here are disputes between the leaderships who have clear visions of strategies and, you know, but the, you know, the mainstream you know, conservative Egyptian uh, who may be in line with Hezbollah Nur may not subscribe to the strategies of the leaders. He may actually be somewhere between the brothers of Hezbollah Nur. I think actually a lot of Egyptians, are, you know, conservative Egyptians, are somewhere in between. So a lot in the base of Hezbollah Nur were actually not willing to go that far against the Muslim Brotherhood and actually quite shocked to see Hezbollah Nur take those kinds of anti-Muslim Brotherhood position, especially after the massacre in Ramad al and So this created trouble in the base of Hezbollah Nur and some kind of uh, basis, base versus leadership uh, 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 rift in, in the party. Uh, some Hezbollah Nur members actually joined the Rabah al uh, 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 sit-in of the Muslim Brotherhood and spoke in the name of Hezbollah Nur Then the party had to say that they did not represent Hezbollah Nur. But this was a sign that, of course, there were tensions within the party. Um, of course, the, the tensions were even more because the Nur party couldn't show any real results to the base. You know, at the beginning, the leaders of Hezbollah Nur said to the party, said to their members, you know, don't worry, you know, we'll get something out of this. But of course, after two years, and you can't really show any gains on the ground, this adds to the, uh, to the resentment of the Salafi base. Uh, so I would expect that Hezbollah Nur has lost a lot of its members today, and I think that they have kept the core group, the core group of the Dawah Salafiyah. But a lot of their supporters and sympathizers have kind of left in the meantime. 
Um, if you look at the, 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 the campaign that were launched against the leaders of Hezbollah, no, they were actually quite violent uh, in, the, in the second half of 2013. Um, uh, there were online campaigns against one of the big sheikhs of the Dawah Salafiya, Yasser Burhami. Uh, I've, I, I want to choose some images that I'm not sure I have time because uh, I want to show you other things and, and time is running. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, calling him all kinds of bad names. Uh, uh, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood were behind. Uh, they called him a pimp. You know, there was a whole, at some point, the, the trending hashtag was uh, Burhami al-Aras, you know, Burhami the pimp, which was, of course, something that was very, you know, uh, insulting for a sheikh. You know, he's a religious figure in the end, you know. But, of course, th- this kind of led to some kind of very virulent rhetoric against uh, Burhami. Burhami, actually, they were, they were allegedly assassination attempts on Burhami, to the point that he had to preach under uh, police protection at some points. There were demonstrations in front of his home in Alexandria by either Muslim Brotherhood supporters or Salafis were uh, not happy with uh, his politics. So you know, the, the, the leaders of, uh, of Hezbollah Nu and Salafi Dawa really went through very difficult times. Um, but I think another of these uh, uh, consequences was that some of those Salafis ended up more and more being attracted to the other forms of Salafism that exist on the market, right? I've talked about one kind of Salafism here, which is the Hezbollah Salafism. The, this formerly apolitical that, you know, created the party but was never really political in the end. But you have other brands of Salafism in Egypt, right? A brand that is more openly political, that uh, you would find within certain parties. Uh, if you look at the, the Coalition for the Defense of Legitimacy, which is led by the Muslim Brotherhood, you have a couple of Salafi parties in it. One of them is Hezbollah Asala, the Authenticity Party, which I would characterize as a political Salafi party that certainly is closer in its vision to the Muslim Brotherhood and that has taken a stance against Hezbollah Noor. Other brands of Salafism include jihadi Salafism, right? And, and there's uh, quite a bit of that in Egypt today, with uh, Ansar Beit al-Maqdis, in the Sinai, with Ajnad Nasr, in Cairo. So again, those are other brands. I'm not you know, going to go into that too much, but of course, if you've seen, uh, uh, those groups have advocated a violent strategy against the Sisi regime, relying and basing themselves on the same kind of Salafi arguments. But there's one third kind of Salafism, which I want to talk about here, because I think uh, uh, this is a phenomenon that has not really been uh, 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 studied properly and that has not really had uh, the visibility in the media that it deserves. It is what I call revolutionary Salafism, which is something that really emerged with the revolution, and that a lot of people would associate with the figure of Hazm Salah Abu Ismail, right? Hazm Salah Abu Ismail, uh, you know, he is somehow the charismatic leader of that trend of revolutionary Salafis. Um, Somehow, as one of my friends once said in Egypt, if there had been a Khomeini in the Egyptian revolution, it would have been him, right? He, is, he was the early proponent of an Islamic revolution in Egypt. And on that basis, gathered a big group of supporters. So, um, um, let me just talk about this and then talk about how this is manifesting itself today, post-Mursi. Uh, so, just, you know, just to, to present this, this character, Hazm Salah Abu Ismail. Uh, he comes from a Muslim Brotherhood family. Uh, his father was actually a senior Muslim Brotherhood figure. 
uh, he himself was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And in the 2000s, Hazem Salah Abu Ismail became more Salafi. He was part of uh, 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 this phenomenon of what my friend Hossam Tammam used to call the Salafization of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? The emergence of a Salafi wing within the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, he would preach on Salafi TV channels, and this is how he became famous in the, you know, after 2005. And what really made him famous is that when the revolution started, he was one of these only acknowledged Salafis to go to Tahrir Square from the beginning and to take a pro-revolution stance from the beginning of the revolution, distinguishing himself from the kind of very skeptical stance that the other Salafis took. Um, he also became known because not only did he support the revolution from the beginning, but he was also very vocal against the army from the beginning, right? He is known to have said from the 11th of February 2011, the, enemy is the, the army is the enemy, right? So do not leave the square until the army is out of power. So again, today, uh, uh, by the way, this would make him some kind, I mean, within his supporters, he's some kind of messiah figure. I mean, it's very interesting. If you look on the net, there's plenty of YouTube videos showing you how Hazem got it right from the beginning. There's one very interesting speech in which he's speaking next to Morsi, actually, in March 2011. It's an Islamist conference. Hazem is speaking. Morsi is next to him. Morsi is not yet a presidential candidate. It's just a month after the revolution. And Hazem says, the army is our enemy, and the army are trying to trick us into this transition process. But, you know, we must not fall to this uh, trap, because eventually the army will revert the process and come back to power. So now, of course, this video, as you can see, is trending on YouTube, and all his supporters are like, he was the guy who got it right from the beginning, which adds to his charisma and, and, and etc. Uh, today. So what are the themes that Hazem Abu Ismail has been talking about and that really make the identity of this Salafi revolutionary movement? Well, those people from the beginning were calling for what they call the immediate and complete implementation of Sharia, right? Sharia Sharia right? So it's about you know a very kind of you know uh, maximalistic claim to distinguish themselves from the brothers and husband Noor, we've taken a more gradual approach, right? So from the beginning, those guys wanted to be seen as the uncompromising ones when it came to Sharia. The second theme was nationalism, right? They were very, Hazem was very nationalist. Sometimes he was an Islamic nationalist, sometimes he was an Egyptian nationalist. He was certainly one of the few big Islamist leaders at the time who openly called for an end to the peace treaty with Israel, which again added to his uh, 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 support among his followers. The third theme was that the revolutionary Salafis identified with the revolution, right? They called themselves Thoriyin. Uh, they considered that the revolution was the beginning of the process and not the end of the process. And this is where they would disagree with, with the Muslim Brotherhood and Hezbollah Noor. They considered that the 11th of February was the beginning, right? And so the fight had to continue, uh, of course, against the army. And the revolutionary Salafis actually were very present in all of the street fights that took place in 2011-2012. If you remember Mohammed Mahmoud's street clashes, November 2011, next to the secular revolutionaries of the 6th of April, you had quite a contingent of revolutionary Salafis. And I remember being on the square at the time when Hazem Salah Abu Ismail came to the square, on Tahrir Square, and it was, you know, everybody stopped all, you know, he had a huge group of revolutionary Salafis around him. And it was like, you know, he had just, you know, come from you know, the sky, you know, and, and basically, I mean, it was, it was impressive uh, how much appeal he could generate among uh, the conservative crowd. Uh, again, you know, in the Abbasiya events, which took place in April 2012, where there were three clashes in front of uh, the siege of the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, 
The revolutionary Salafis were leading the fight against the army. So again, you know, they were really involved in all those events. Um, and you know, he managed to uh, expand his movement. Uh, former Muslim Brotherhood members joined. Former Salafis from the other Salafi groups joined. Uh, Hazm at some point became a phenomenon, right? And he became a phenomenon also because he was able to uh, uh, understand that uh, he could use the institutional process in order to gain more visibility. So he decided to run for the presidency. And so he was not just an Islamist leader, he became a wannabe president campaigning. And again, this added to you know, the visibility he could get. And, uh, and at some point, actually, in the, some of the polls in March 2012, I remember at the time, uh, he was running first in some of the polls, right? He was really, he, was, he had about 20%, and he was seen as a very, you know, a potential winner of the elections. What is really interesting is that, as I said, it was more a strategy because, you know, I've been interviewing revolutionary Salafis. Their whole message was against the institutional process. So, uh, in a sense, they would use... The, you know, the presidential campaign as a way to get visibility and, you know, and to use the campaign in order to expand the social movement. But for them, street politics came before institutional politics. What they believed then was not that Hazem would change things because he would be president. What they believed then is some kind of Islamic revolution that would come from the streets. But for them, the institutional process could be used because it was, again, one of the tools that in this particular moment uh, they could use. So I, I'm, I'm quoting one of the leaders of Hazemun, which was the movement of supporters of Hazem in 2012, who said, it was not so much about the presidency. The campaign was an opportunity for us to expand the revolutionary base. So again, you have this ambiguity in Hazem, you know, because in the end, it's about radical change from below. It was never about institutional politics. And this is precisely how he gained his appeal. Because in 2000, March 2012, you have to remember that the Muslim Brotherhood and Hezbollah Noor have been in the parliament for three months. And people are already seeing that you know, they are being compromised with the system. A lot of you know, the more uh, revolutionary types, the more uncompromising types would say, well, you know, they've agreed to all the conditions set by the SCAF. Uh, Hezbollah Noor now is saying that they're Democrats. Uh, Hezbollah Noor now is putting women on their list. You know, they have compromised with everything, with the army, with the Salafi creed. In that sense, you know, Hazem is the one who wins because he can present himself as the only uncompromising Islamist in the game. Um, of course, things changed dramatically in April 2012 because Hazem's candidacy was declared invalid. Allegedly, his mother was American. Uh, his mother, who had lived in the U.S. for a while, allegedly got U.S. citizenship. And as per the Egyptian electoral law, uh, a pre- a camp- uh, you cannot campaign uh, in Egypt uh, to become president if you have a relative who is either a foreigner or binational. So Hazem was suddenly ejected from the presidential race, and this kind of solved the problem. And at the time, I can tell you, everyone was happy, right? The army was happy, uh, uh, the uh, West was happy, Hezbollah was happy, because Hezbollah was quite scared of him as well. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood were happy. In a sense, you know, he was uh, 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 a problem for everyone. In a sense, this kind of populist politic he was playing was kind of detrimental to all institutional actors. We're quite happy to see him out. Um, during the, um, yet, you know, despite the fact he was ejected from the presidential race, his base of support remained. And he'd remain one of the big, you know, social movements within the Islamist camp. Uh, during the Morsi presidency, they took very interesting stances, very ambiguous. On the one hand, they were with Morsi, on the other hand, they were against Morsi. 
Uh, one of their problems was, I remember at the time, the debates they had around the Constitution. On the one hand, they didn't want to campaign against the Constitution because they didn't want to campaign with the liberals. But at the same time, they thought that the, constitu- the Constitution that was voted under Morsi was too favorable to the military and was not Islamic enough. In their sense, you know, uh, uh, the Sharia should have been even more prominent in the proper uh, Islamic Constitution. So, you know, but at the same time, of course, you know, they were, they understood that, you know, they could benefit from the Morsi period. So they were not extremely vocal against Morsi. Um, and in the wake of uh, the deposition of Morsi on the 3rd of July, they remain one of the main components of the anti-CC camp. And I think this is one of the things that I, I'm, I'm really, you know, surprised every time I, I, uh, I you know, look at the media, both in Egypt and in the West, that everyone seems to think that today those who protest against Sisi uh, and the Islamist camp are all pro-Morsis. I can tell you there's a lot of revolutionary Salafis protesting that are both against Sisi but also against Morsi. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, a while ago there was this, this article um, by a uh, uh, French journalist, Alain Grèche, right, who was in Cairo, and, and he was covering the Mataria protest on, on the 25th of January 2015. And, and his post, he posted this on his blog, he notes, there were no pro-Morsi slogans and no Morsi pictures. Of course, Mataria is a revolutionary Salafi base. It's well known to be not a pro-Muslim Brotherhood base, but a base in which, revolu- a place in which revolutionary Salafis are actually much stronger than the Brotherhood. So I'm just trying to say that, you know, the kind of the Islamist, the position to Sisi, is actually much more divided than it looks. And this revolutionary Salafi component is actually uh, uh, quite present in the protests. And uh, quite competing with the Muslim Brotherhood, actually, for the leadership of the protests. I'll give you one example of this, and, and then I'll, I'll try to finish if you can get five minutes more. Um, I don't know if you, some of you remember, um, in November 2014, uh, there were calls for protests in Egypt for what was called Intifada al-Shabab al-Muslim, right? The 28th of November, right? The insurgency or the Intifada of the Muslim youth. And uh, the Muslim Brotherhood made a, 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 a statement that they were not supporting those protests. And then, very interestingly, the Muslim Brotherhood Youth Branch made another statement saying that they would be participating. So this was interesting because it was a rift between the use of the Muslim Brotherhood and the leadership. But it was also interesting because it was not coming from the Muslim Brotherhood. It was actually coming from the revolutionary Salafis. And, uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, didn't want to be part of this because they understood that what was at stake was the leadership of the Islamist opposition to Sisi. So, uh, again, you know, th- th- this shows you how complex the picture is within the Islamist camp and continues to be. Uh, the revolutionary Salafis are not united in one group. There are actually a, a certain number of groups that have taken the inspiration from Hazem Salah Abu Ismail and who are present in the, the kind of stage of protest today. Uh, and I'm going to talk about one. I'm going to show you some images because I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, 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 example. Uh, it's the movement called Harakat Ahrar. Uh, I don't know if some of you are familiar with it, right? Uh, the movement of the free, uh, as you could translate it, which was founded by a member of the Hazimun, early supporter of Hazim. It pr- describes itself as a youth movement. And I'm quoting from their uh, uh, founding statement. Uh, in September 2012, it was founded. It's a youth movement uniting all types of young people craving freedom at all levels. Their own freedom, that of their country, of their land. They find the path of this freedom in authentic Islam, of which all Muslims should be proud. So you see how they're mixing revolutionary themes with a kind of more conservative Islamic claim. Um, This uh, 
how it kind of became a big movement on university campuses, especially some universities in Cairo and Mansoura. They became a big part of the student protest already on the Morsi, by the way, and in the wake, in, in, in the wake of uh, 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 the deposition of Morsi. Uh, they organized a number of protests in Cairo. They organized, they were very instrumental in the protests at Al Azhar in the late 2013. Uh, but they also, I mean, I think they're also interesting because they're quite paradigmatic of the changes that is taking place within the grassroots of the Salafi movement. Because on the one hand, they, they subscribe to Hazm Salah Ismail's revolutionary Salafism. On the other hand, they're kind of, you know, influenced by all kinds of different discourses. They have some kind of leftist, Occupy Wall Street type discourse. I will show you this in a moment, right? So there's some kind of, you know, anti-imperialist, you know, radical leftist component in their discourse. A very anti-imperialist, very anti-American. Uh, Salafi at the same time. Uh, they use, uh, uh, you know, the anonymous V for Vendetta masks in some of their protests, in some of their campaign material. What is quite interesting as well is that the backbone of the movement was formed by former Yultras. Uh, 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 football supporters who subscribe to revolutionary Salafism. And some actually of the big names in the White Knights of uh, uh, Zamalek, who were recently banned by the government, and, and you can also see why, uh, have actually joined uh, the revolutionary Salafi movement. Uh, and you can see all of those different influences in their, uh, in their propaganda. I'm going to show you some images to give you examples of what this is. I think this is quite interesting because I think of course, this is a har, but I think it kind of represents some kind of grassroots change within, uh, within the Salafi movement that can be applied beyond Ahrar. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of those movements we've heard about who uh, are committing acts of isolated violence, if you've seen recently there was one called Harakat al-Muqawm al-Shaabiyya, the movement of, of uh, popular resistance, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, some of the same people, some of the same influences would be found within those movements. It's very difficult to know who is, beyond, who is behind those movements. But again, this is my intuition. And I'm going to show you some images, and we'll finish on this. Um, So, great. Uh, let me see. Okay. So, this is an image of one of the, the Hazimun guys. Actually, some of you have seen this picture. This is in Abbasiyah in April 2012. This guy is actually a Hazimun member. He's called Adel al-Sagheer, and they've turned him into an icon of the uh, kind of revolutionary Salafi movement. This is a very famous picture. It was, uh, I think it was taken by Mus'ab al-Shami, uh, who's a, a journalist, and a, uh, but, but he's become, it's become quite used, and you can see the logo of Harakat Ahrar there, Ahrar movement. Um, oops. This is the ultras, right? So this is Ahrar on the top, Yurtras Ahlawi, all cops are bastards, which is the slogan of the ultras, mixed with the logo of Ahrar, right? So this is to show you the uh, ultras influence there. This is a graffiti, which is very funny. As you can see, this is the trap, right? So this is the Al-Ikhwan here who are walking into the machine. The machine is called Al-Islam Al-Amriki, American Islam. And then when they go back, they're Al-Almaniya. They become secularists, right? So this is the machine that transforms Ikhwan into secularists. This is the trap, right? This is interesting because this is the kind of radical maximalist rhetoric that you would hear with Ahmad, right? Al-Hudud uh, Turab, right? The, 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 the borders are just uh, dust. dust, right? Um, 
And this is a protest which they organized on the 11th of January 2014. And you can see here your, 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 uh, uh, your borders, your laws, your ideas, your ideologies. We are, are going to fight them all. Right? So you can see the kind of maximalism. And, and, and you can see the image they take. You know, it doesn't really look like a Salafi imagery. Right? Uh, looks more like an anarchist black bloc type imagery. This is interesting. Right? <laughs> If you see that Sharia mashbis l'Islamiyin, Sharia is not just for Islamists, right? Uh, so uh, you know the, the and, and with this kind of nice and, and colorful, you know, and the line which they use very much and which is very present in Salafi propaganda. It's also been noted. If you look at Daesh propaganda, you have a lot of lions as well. So this is one of those uh, images. And it's in Chinese, which I find very interesting, and I have not been able to know what this means, but if there is anyone who reads Chinese, I'd be interested to <laughs> see what they have to say in Chinese. Uh, this is when they organized a protest in the wake of uh, Morsi's deposition with the uh, anonymous mask. Uh, and they were trying to organize what they call at the time a Tayyarithalis, not Ikhwan, not brothers. Uh, but with a very kind of radical Islamist message. So uh, it was not Abu al-Futur, who was also trying to organize his own Tayyar al-Thalis. And at some point, actually, they talked, and then they decided they had nothing to do with each other. They were demonstrating in, 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 the, in Sphinx Square in Cairo at the time, during the summer 2013. This is very interesting. This is Ahrar. This is a very kind of Occupy Wall Street kind of rhetoric, you know, the, the, the 1% and the 99%. I'm not going to read it all because time is running. Uh, time has run out, so just one Okay. Um, let me see. This is one of the protests in the wake of, uh, of the deposition of Morsi. La sharia wa la tafweed, right? Both against the legitimacy of Morsi, but, but both against the mandate for Sisi, right? It was the time of these demonstrations in favor of Sisi that were called tafweed, right? Um, this is just to show you at some point, they came out on a demonstration for, to, to commemorate the fall of Andalusia. So, so and, and the way that it had really nothing to do with Egyptian politics, but they made a, 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 a you know, so, Lennon said Andalus, Hetman said Aruz, right? We will not forget Andalusia, we will come back, for sure. So, this is also the kind of, you know, maximalistic message. And this is some of the uh, uh, members who are in prison, And, and this is really interesting. This is one of the graffitis. لَمْ تَحْكُمْنَا America. America will not rule us, right? And as you can see again, the imagery is, is quite modern for Salafis in a sense, right? You wouldn't really expect that from uh, a Salafi movement. So, so they're a hybrid. But I think it says a lot about the, the kind of hybridation that are taking place at the grassroots. Can I have two minutes to show a video? Uh, we're going to stop you at half past. So, uh... Okay. No, no, I... The, I just wanted to show you this, which is... This is a video which they made before the 30th of June. So before the fall of Morsi. Against the merchants of religion and against the merchants of law. So it's both against Morsi and against the army. Defend your revolution, protect your religion. Our revolution is from our religion. And... And you're going to see the kind of mix again. So they mix 
Tanit Saeed was the first Salafi Maltab. The song is sung in the Yultra's way. This is, this is based on Yultra's chants. But then you see it's a Feiruz song actually. You're gonna see. <laughs> so it's, it's a very weird hybrid. Muslim Brotherhood sold us and uh, the, the army betrayed us. You can recognize that. Oh, okay. Right. I'm Thank done you here. very much. Now, um, I thought that was superb, uh, so I let the, our speaker, Stefan, run on a bit, but now we have at least half an hour for questions. Uh, so who would like uh, to comment on that? Yeah. Um, if they are so flexible politically... Hezbollah. Yeah. Well, even those hybrids, Ahrar, they are also flexible to integrate everybody and their dogs, kind of. Yani. So they seem to be having a flexibility... Um, well, why aren't they as flexible religiously? I mean, they come and they say we are going to have Hezbollah, for example, we're going to allow Christians to be candidates and so on. And then they issue this silly fatwa that you cannot congratulate Christians for their Christian uh, Christmas or Eid al-Qiyamah or Eid al-Saud or whatever, especially Eid al-Saud because this is... Uh, anti-Islamic since we don't believe that, since the Muslims don't believe that Jesus is God's son, etc. So they have these totally inflexible stances on stupid issues that are actually um, going to bite them politically. Because when they come and say we take uh, Christian candidates or we accept them and they produce this weird guy who is a Christian and will join them for whatever reason, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, how can they then defend? Yeah, 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 we've got it. Yeah. Let's, you want to take several? Yeah, no, take that. That's great. That's no, great. Uh, look, once, uh, I'm quoting from one of my interviews with one of them. He described this very interestingly. He said, uh, So they would distinguish between what is creed. And of course, they're Salafis. In the end, if you go back to the core of Salafism, it's about the creeds. So uh, you would never expect a Salafi sheikh to make a fatwa in which he would say, uh, you can participate in Christian uh, 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 you know, religious celebrations. What they would say, they would distinguish between politics as uh, a separate sphere in which you have this ability to make alliances and, you know, and as they did, and choose one side or the other depending on the maslaha. But then the creed is something that's inflexible. Of course, sometimes you know, the boundaries between the siyas and the creed actually can shift, right? What is part of the politics and what is part of the creeds? How far can you go? Some of their uh, enemies within the Salafis would say, you know, alliances are part of the creed. So if you sit next to the Pope, which they did, 
And I was going to show you also the, the too many images to show. One of the images that were trending against the, the Hezb al-Nur uh, in, in, the, in the summer 2013 was uh, uh, Sheikh Burhami dressed as a pope, as a Pope Tawadros, and Nader Bakar dressed as a, 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 a priest you know, from the Coptic Church, which is what they would use against them, saying you sat with them. You, you, so in the end, this is against the very Salafi principle of al-Wala al-Bara, right? Uh, uh, loyalty and disavowal loyalty to true Muslims and disavowal of, of, of deviancy, and of course, non-Muslims. So of course, you know, it's all about, you know, they, they would justify it by saying, we stick to the creed, but we're flexible in politics. But again, the whole debate is where you put the boundary. Okay. Sure. Tell me, who is financing this movement, Al-Nur, Al-Raslafia, considering that Egypt is now surviving on the handouts it gets from Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. Do you think it's uh, in the long term, that's the following question, that Egypt will survive without the, these handouts from the Gulf states? Thank you. That's too quick. Yeah, answer those two as well. well, well <laughs> okay. Look, um, I don't think... Uh, so as I said earlier, it's not the Saudi government. Maybe actually, probably, uh, somehow I would say that maybe after the 3rd of July, the Saudi government likes them much more because now they've, you know, they've taken the right stance uh, as per the view of the Saudi government. So I wouldn't be surprised if the links between Hezbollah and Noah are stronger now than they used to be because of the, 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 you know, during, you know, the, the kind of pro-CC stance that is exactly in line with Saudi Arabia's. Uh, but before that, you're right. I mean, uh, everyone noticed. I remember at the time uh, during the, the, the campaign, the, the, the parliamentary campaign, Hezbollah Noor had very flashy campaign material. They had posters all over Cairo. The posters were very well done. Everyone was saying, well, they must have money from somewhere. Uh, what uh, Hezbollah Noor would tell you at the time, if you want to ask them, they would say, no, we have rich people in Egypt financing us, which is probably true. I mean, to some extent, I would imagine that, you know, they have quite a few rich people. There's generally this view that Salafis are just some kind of working class movement. You know, they're just from Ashwaiyat, you know. That's not true. I've met plenty of upper class Salafis in Egypt. I, one of my, my, my friends, talking to him one day, he's a liberal from uh, uh, central Cairo, and he was telling me about how his, half of his family became Salafi at some point. And he's, you know, a wealthy man from a wealthy family, and at some point, uh, his mother went to Hajj in Saudi Arabia, and she came back influenced Salafi, and then the father did the same, and then half of the family was Salafi. I would imagine that these people, if a Salafi share comes to them and says, you know, help the da'wah, they would give, because they have the money to give. Is that enough? I don't know. Uh, that's what I've said that probably, you know, you know, wealthy people, sheikhs living in Saudi Arabia, maybe Egyptians who are in Saudi Arabia would certainly send some money. Uh, of course, Hezbollah Noor and Dar would always tell you, no, it's not true. But I would imagine there must be some truth to it. Uh, so it's a very tricky question, this question of finances. And of course, you'd never get a clear answer from anyone, by the way. You can ask any, you can ask the Muslim Brotherhood as well, they would never tell you. They would say, it's just our people funding us. Salafis would tell you the same thing. So for a researcher, again, it's difficult to have any concrete proof of anything. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and how important uh, the, the money they're sending to Egypt today is, uh, it is, of course, yeah, they, 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 the Saudis are being, uh, uh, I mean, I've paid a lot, uh, uh, you know, arguably, uh, I've heard figures going up to 20 billion since two years, uh, which is huge. 
Um, um, and uh, of course, it's not just Saudi Arabia. The Emirates have been contributing considerably as well, uh, and to a lesser extent, Kuwait. Um, but um, but I, I would imagine that at the moment, uh, uh, the, the Egyptian economy needs that money, uh, and. Uh, and that's a problem because the Saudis, you know, the price of oil are going down, which is a good thing on the one hand because oil costs less in Egypt and so uh, it has to be less subsidized by the government. At the same time, it's a bad thing because, of course, you know, you can expect Saudi Arabia in the long term to be less generous. Yeah. I was wondering if you could comment on what strategies that liberal currents within Egypt could pursue to convince the Noor that it's in its interest to distance themselves from Sisi or put pressure on the regime to open up or, or join forces on their lobbying efforts? Um, I don't think it's really possible. Because as I said, if you, I mean, it's, it's, it goes against the logic of Hezbollah. Hezbollah, what they want is, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, stability and protection, which offer them the space which they need to preach. They don't think that liberals would offer them that. So they would converge with liberals temporarily as they did against Morsi in the second half of Morsi's mandate because they had a common enemy. But uh, I don't think today Hezbollah would be interested at all in, 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 joining the, uh, um, in joining the liberals in anything. I think the question can be asked for the Muslim Brotherhood to some extent, although I mean, it, it seems that the hatred between the two camps has gone uh, pretty far. But, uh, but when it comes to, to, the, to, to Hezbollah, I don't, really, I don't see them... Uh, I mean, they're not revolutionary. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood are not revolutionary, but the Salafis are even less revolutionary, except for the groups I've talked at the end of the talk, which are, I mean, on the opposite side. And, 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 and in a sense, the two are kind of irreconcilable. Do you, no? Yeah, do you have a question? Yes. Yeah. position. Um, and also, how, how do you see uh, the current repression of the Sisi regime against the Islamists? Does it include also some of the Salafis? Okay. Um, look, um, first, um, the, the, they were generally justified by saying it's in the interest of the Dawah. So the theme that would come back when, when followers would ask is, you know, we're protecting the Dawah. And we need to do this to protect the Dawah. And we, the leaders know better. Just trust us. You know. Of course, this argument can work to some extent, but it's less working today because you know, the followers would say whatever we want. You know, so so uh, uh, they're being challenged more and more by their followers on this. You know, what, have you, what have you done to protect the Dawah? Um, and the leaders would say, well, at least we're not in prison. Right? And this is what Hasbun Nur can say. This is the only thing they've achieved. They're not in prison. Right? And actually, they've been pretty spared. Uh, there was a, a very... Uh, somehow funny video that at some point was circulated by the Muslim Brotherhood in, in the second half of 2013, where there is a, a, a demonstration against uh, Sisi in the streets, and the police arrests a guy, and the guy, you know, is, shows his car from Hezbollah Noor, and, and the police says, let, let him go, he's one of us. Of course, the, the Muslim Brotherhood used this to say how, you know, to show how compromised Hezbollah Noor was with the regime. I'm not sure this happened every time. Hezbollah Noor actually had some people arrested because it's sometimes difficult to, to show. But in this particular case, you know, the Hezbollah Noor card saved the person from arrest. 
Um, of course, when it comes to the other Salafis, they are, uh, you know, repressed just like the brothers, right? So Hezbollah are an exception. Uh, the, the other groups I've talked about, the political Salafis, the revolutionary Salafis, um, uh, are as uh, uh, um, repressed as are the Muslim Brotherhoods. Uh, remember that um, the, the, one of the first Islamist leaders to be arrested in the wake of the 3rd of July was Hazm Salabu Ismail. He died. Why would they arrest him first? Because they know he has this kind of Khomeini potential, right? So, in a sense, the Brotherhood can only mobilize their own Brotherhood base, you know. Khayat uh, al is not a charismatic man. He can talk to the brothers. You know, Hazm Ismail can come up and make speeches, and you know, and he would... So, of course, he was the guy that they would arrest first. Uh, on some, uh, uh, actually, very, uh, uh, I mean, you, you would just, you know, the charges that were used is that he fought his mother's nationality, for which he was later, you know, in, in, unable to campaign. He was sentenced to seven years in jail for forging his mother's nationality, which you would say is a pretty harsh sentence for what is supposed to be just some kind of administrator. But, of course, it, it is meant as a political sentence against someone who's seen as... Uh, really problematic for the regime. Yeah. Yes, so on the subject of Abu Ismail, actually, I was wondering if you could explain what was Anur's rationale to back him as a candidate before he was disqualified from the race if they felt threatened by him. They never backed him. They never backed him. They never, they, they, they were, I mean, I was at the time meeting them. They, they said he was uncontrollable, he was not part of the da'wah, he doesn't represent us. Um, they, they, I mean, in a sense, he was a threat because, he, again, he was not under their control. He would, he would actually put them in a very difficult position uh, because he was a Salafi in the end, so they would be associated to him and to his politics, which they understood to be a threat to the Dawah. So I think they were really relieved when, he was, uh, when, when his candidacy was invalidated. Uh, uh, what was worrying for them at the time is that when Hazem uh, gathered the signatures for his campaign, 10 Hezbanur MPs signed for Hazem which shows you the appeal that he had among the very base of Hezbollah. And this was seen as a major problem by the leadership, because again, the base was much more pro-Hazm than it was uh, uh, pro-leadership. So, um, but, but again, no, they never formally, I mean, the leadership was very worried, and you know, there was grassroots support, but, uh, but for them, it was a, he was a problem, and they were relieved he was out. So, yeah. um, you mentioned Shiism and how the Salafis tend to be much uh, tougher on Shiism I think it was in the spring of 2012, in the run-up to the overthrow of Morsi, that you had that horrible incident in the village near Sa'ara, where some people who had converted to Shiism were, um, I think, burnt to death by mm-hmm. mob, and the police stood by. And the police said they didn't have any orders. Do you think, are you able to unpick a bit to what extent um, the inactivity came from the Muslim Brotherhood? Absolutely. In 2006, people were having uh, portraits of uh, Hassan Nasrallah in their homes, you know, in the wake of the war in, uh, uh, between Hezbollah and Israel. So you're right. At some point, there was an appeal, which was more political appeal than a religious appeal. But, uh, 
But, uh, you know, actually, I think that the Mubarak government at the time, you know, was quite worried about this appeal that Nasrallah had. Um, uh, but I would say that, uh, I mean, the Salafis have been instrumental in promoting an anti-Shia discourse. But, you know, in the end, everyone kind of, you know, adopted that discourse, right? Uh, Al-Azhar also is very tough, you know. Of course, Al-Azhar is being challenged on this. In the end, Al-Azhar is the big Sunni institution. So how can they be outbid by the Salafis on protecting Sunni orthodoxy? So Al-Azhar has also taken very strong stances against Shiism. Um, the brothers have in their speeches, especially, uh, you know, as I said, since the 90s, with you had this, this movement of Salafization of the Brotherhood, you know, they, they have their own anti-Shi'i figures. Um, so, you know, this, it's a trend that has been gaining ground among different groups. Morsi, I mean, the Brotherhood are more pragmatic when it comes to the Shia. They, you know, they, 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 they were, actually, Morsi was quite happy to have a good relationship with Iran, probably because he was looking for uh, regional powers to back him. So, you know, pragmatically, uh, he, would, he would look for Iran's support. Um, but, uh, but certainly today, I mean, you know, it has become more mainstream to be anti-Shi, and everyone has kind of trying to outbid the other on this. So there's a general climate, I would say. I wouldn't... Salafis were certainly instrumental in promoting that climate. But today it's kind of shared. Uh, I guess if I were to try and sum up your lecture, you're telling a story about Noor being surprisingly popular in the aftermath of gaining uh, electoral capacity and then being compromised by Sisi and, and its base shrinking, I'm, I'm guessing, and then Hassan coming up as, a, as this charismatic, less tainted figure, and then, well, I'm not quite sure what to make of a kind of hybrid youth movement bringing in the altars, again, a, a kind of re, a, with revolutionary legitimacy. I suppose the question is, to what extent Salafism as a, a brand, a creed, how popular a space does it have within Egyptian society and to what extent has Noor tainted that or shrunk that? Are you saying there was a, almost a, uh, a fleeing from Noor back to the Brotherhood or to this radical Salafism? Where, mm-hmm. What would you say? What, what is the future of Salafism in Egypt, I suppose, but how are these different different turns actually compromised it as an ideology Mm -hmm. well I mean what you have is um, I mean I would say since the 2000s probably the 90s you know a kind of a Salafi religiosity that has spread to the society Uh, a lot of people would you know in Egypt would more and more consider Salafism to be the proper Islamic norm uh, even when they're actually not Salafi. Uh, I've, 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 you know, I've remember talking to a lot of people uh, at the time who would tell me, well, you know, of course, uh, uh, you know, niqab is the proper way to dress for a woman. Uh, their wife may not wear niqab, but they would think that she should, she will, inshallah, you know. There's something about, you know, the way that this is the model that we hope to achieve. I, I remember, I mean, uh, meeting a, 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 I mean, a, a, I'm not going to say his name, uh, but uh, a candidate of Hezbollah Noor, who uh, was not really very Salafi. I mean, he, you know, he talked, you know, he, you know, he, he was uh, uh, a very, uh, I mean, he loved uh, American movies. He traveled to Paris all the time. He, you know, he talked about his trips to Paris. And, you know, it, it wasn't, he, and then I told him, why are you campaigning for the Salafis? He's like, they're good people. I want to be like them. I cannot really be like them, but I think we should be like them. 
So it's really interesting how, in a sense, you know, this, can, this kind of normative influence, which I think has not disappeared. Uh, uh, and, I mean, if you, you know, the, 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 the thing is, Salafism as a religiosity, in a sense, is, is also quite disconnected from the politics. Uh, I mean, Salafis throughout the world, you can see a whole range of very different attitudes coming from the very kind of, you know, loyalist, pro-regime Salafis on the one hand, who are you know, just you know, interested in keeping the regime in place and stability and, and preaching their message, to the jihadi revolutionary types. And you can have anything in between. So, uh, in the, I mean, if you look at the, the demonstration of the 30th of June uh, in Egypt against Mursi, you had a lot of people who would have a Salafi religiosity in the demonstrations. Remember at the time, the woman was niqab demonstrated against Morsi. Uh, I'm not sure they were husband nor they may be not just nothing, just you know regular Egyptians who, uh, for political reasons, were you know angry because they thought that uh, uh, prices went high because there was no security. You know all these arguments that people made against Morsi at the time. So in a sense, you know that I don't think I don't know how much this is harming Salafi religiosity per se, which I think is quite disconnected from the politics and. Um, and this is one of the things that a lot of people in Hezbollah Noor have been saying. I mean, you have a whole branch of the, the Hezbollah Noor leaders who said, let's just revert to Dawah. You know, in the end, we were good when we did Dawah. People liked us. You know, why did we get into this game? It's a losing game. Yes, sir, you right at the back. Um, just on the differences between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis uh, in Egypt, in, in Tunisia, I remember Mushi had said, idea of the Salafis being a, um, a lobby group, a lobbying group, and the Muslim Brotherhood being a political group, this distinction. Um, I know it's, it's often said that sometimes outsiders make a mistake of, of seeing uh, Islamists as one single monolithic threat, but, um, and that this is a mistake. Do you think there is maybe some truth to that? That they want the same thing, but their approach is different? Uh, I met Edgar Bakar again in September, and he was saying that uh, he was very critical of Morsi, but almost uh, feeling, I, I felt, you know, all the policies and positions that I agree with him, but it's that he felt he wasn't pragmatic. He said he spoke of how he was someone who is willing to fall on his sword just because he doesn't, he's not flexible, he's not willing to compromise with, with the army as the Salafis are, as the Muslims are. And, uh, you know, but I, I didn't feel that the ideology is necessarily mm-hmm. um, at odds. Well, I, I think that's what I, 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 I talked about, the, the dominant line within Hezbollah Noor. Uh, I think you have a lot of people like Nader Bakar who actually want to be politicians. He, he's, you know, he wants to be more than just a spokesman for a lobby. The words he used, he said, Morsi isn't a professional politician. Yeah, yeah no, no, absolutely. We're talking, <laughs> he wants to go for an MPA in, uh, in Harvard School. You know, he, you know, he's very ambitious, in his, in, in, and he wants to be a politician. Uh, I don't think he represents the line of the party in this, especially the sheikhs behind it. Uh, and this is why sometimes, you know, you, you, we're talking about, you know, parties that have, uh, you know, a lot of people speaking for them and saying very different things. 
so I'm trying to, you know, analyze the political behavior of the party more than the individual statements, because the individual statements in the end wouldn't tell you much. I mean, Islamic parties would always say they like each other, because it's part, you know, we're brothers in the end, you know, it's the ummah, how can you, you know, so it's very difficult for an Islamist party to come out very harshly against another, because you'd immediately be accused of fitna, and what are you doing, and you know, so, so generally all these things would take place behind closed doors, we would read them through the political strategies, but you cannot really expect them, actually today more, because of the, the blood that has been spilled. So now if you ask the brothers what they think of Nazar Bakar, then, you have, then you'll hear plenty of horrible things. But because there's been an episode of blood in between. But before that, even you know, during the moments of dispute, they would say, no, 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 We're, you know, we, we, are, we like each other, we are. Um, in the very end, you're right, I mean, it's, it's about an Islamic society. It's about, you know, so there is some kind of truth to the fact that, um, that you know, the, the, the end line, is not that different in a way. It is because what constitutes proper Islam for Salafis is different from what constitutes proper Islam for the brothers. But in the end, it's Islam. But uh, that doesn't mean that you know you cannot have you know real disputes as in the political strategies, and and that can lead to uh, I mean again you know this this very I mean again the stance that that, that they took on the third of July I think is. It's just the result of you know all these disputes, and you can go back to the 80s. You know, when you when you when you when you interviewed the sheikhs of the Salafi Dawah, they would tell you how they used to fist fight on campuses, brothers and Salafis. So it's been a long story of of you know uh, accumulation of rivalries, personal stories. Well, in the last five minutes, we'll take everyone else who wants a question. You first, sir, and then you, and then you down at the front. Um, yeah. Well, I, oh wait, no. Uh, right, <laughs> the lady at the back. You, yes, we're going to take them all together. So I'll just repeat, that's an excellent question for the, because we couldn't bring a mic to you. It, it's about the Salafist understanding and attitude towards the state and, and their developing approach to it, I suppose, beyond a kind of societal uh, preaching from below that you've identified. And the final question here. Yeah. Oh, me, uh, yeah, 
I was just going to I was just going to ask uh, what, what sort of commentary the, the various Salafi groups have given on Egypt's new participation in the Yemen uh, new, uh, in the Yemeni civil war, civil war and Egypt's participation in it. So you've got two questions. One about Egyptians, uh, Egypt's policy to Libya and what North think. Another question about uh, the Salaf's attitude towards the ongoing and almost certainly disastrous campaign in Yemen. And the final big philosophical theological question about uh, Salafi views of the state. Take it away. Yemen is easy. They're very much for it. Like the Saudis, I mean, most most uh, you know Salafis of this brand in the world, you know, they see this as a as a Sunni Shia conflict. Uh, Saudis are defending the Sunnis against uh, against Shia, so of course they, they have every reason to be for it. I mean, according to their own logic. So, so on this, they have not had any any kind of criticism. Interestingly, the criticism have come from the Brotherhood, which have been divided on Yemen. Right, so you can see as well how, of course, it has to do with the fact that it's Sisi, and so they're trying to use it against Sisi. But it also has to do with the fact that, again, as I said, the, the, the kind of, I mean, the Salafis have a kind of immediately more sectarian way of looking at this. The brothers look at this more politically, although some may have a sectarian discourse as well. Um, um, but when it comes to Hezbollah North, they're kind of united on this. Uh, I leave the theoretical question for the end. Uh, on Libya, I think that there's indeed a lot of uh, a, a worry uh, because Libya has been uh, a, a base for uh, a lot of Egyptian Islamists, uh, either from the Muslim Brotherhood or from jihadi groups, and have found support. And, uh, and so uh, Egypt, of course, considers that uh, you know, Libya, in the end, you know, will just continue feeding the security threat in Egypt. So if you cannot control Libya, then you, know, you will never bring stability back to Egypt, as, as Sisi envisions it. Um, and so that's why, of course, the, the, you've seen that the Egyptian government has been involved in, in, in bombings and, I mean, in, in military uh, uh, bombings in Libya, uh, of course, in the wake of the, the 21 cops who were killed by Daesh. But also, I mean, there's been a, a number of alleged uh, military interventions from Egypt that have been denied, but it's unclear with the Emirates, and, you know, it's unclear how much Egypt was involved. But, uh, but it's very high on the security agenda. Um, and I am not aware of any particular comments that Anur has made on this, but I, I mean, they're pretty much uh, in favor of Sisi on everything, so I don't know why they would be against this very much. I mean, I, there's no particular reason why they would see this as uh, particularly problematic from their own standpoint. In the end, they, they're very uh, supportive of Sisi on everything else. Um, when it comes to the, to the more philosophical question, well, the term, I mean, there's very little in terms of political theory in the Salafi literature. Um, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, in, back in uh, two, late 2011, at the time, wrote a wonderful paper um, uh, in Arabic, uh, which he was commenting on the Salafis in Egypt, and he called it al-mumaras al-muntija lil-afkar. That is, you know, the practices that produces ideas, right? So his guess was that the Salafis were changing on the ground in their behavior, and that would eventually lead them to change the theory. He was being too optimistic. They never did. So the very Salafis who are, uh, you know, the husband Noor, who are uh, uh, part of a, you know, pluralist system, democratic at least, for two years and a half, or 
Some would say less. I leave that to uh, for the debate. Uh, but at least, you know, during this phase, you know, Salafis were part of that, you know, construction of a democratic system. At the same time, if you'd visit the Salafi library, you'd find all the same books about democratia and why democratia was kufr. And, you know, there's never been a book saying, well, you know, the new context. The context has changed, so let's reconsider our theory of the, of the state. Of, you know, books are, you know, there's very little in political theory. That's one of the only books I can think of, actually, on political theory. Said Abdel Azim's book on, on democratia. Which is, which is a very Salafi denunciation of democracy. It's one of the actually the very few books that actually deal with the political subject. Uh, but it's never been reconsidered. So even the term state, Adola, in the Salafi religious literature is not used. Say Khilafa, if they would talk about this, they take in very kind of utopian general terms about Khilafa. But uh, the, the term state itself, uh, I mean, the term state itself, as we know in Arabic, dola is a 19th century word that was used to translate the state, as, you know, as it was you know, in the translations of books of political uh, theory from Europe. Uh, it's not an Islamic word, I mean, not in that sense. And um, it's not an Islamic text, as in the sense that we use it today. So Salafis wouldn't use it either. So I wouldn't really say there's a theory of the state. There are practices. There are practices that could have led to a theory, but actually never did. At the end of the day, which is anti creed, I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, what they would say, they would have many ways of justifying this. They would say Darura, for instance, which is a perfectly fine uh, jurisprudential concept. You know, necessity. You have to do things by necessity. Maslaha, Darura. Yeah. You know, they, they have plenty of Islamic concepts that you can use to justify doing things that are not really in the books, but out of necessity or out, you know, and for, you know, for the interest of the. So this is what they would use generally, but this is not led, it's not based on a theory, and this is not led to the production of a theory. That's what I can say at least. Right, and that's a good way to end. I think our next Middle East Center meeting is Saudi Islamists on the Peaceful Revolution, Divine Politics Reconsidered, on this Tuesday, Tuesday the 2nd of June, uh, Madawi al-Rashid, and it'll be next door in the Zayed Theater, so you're more than welcome to, that, to, to come to that. I think we've been treated this evening to a... a a bravado, an excellent performance, an academic at the top of his game, who spoke far too long because he was absolutely entranced with his material, which was absolutely fascinating, and he took us from his, his base research right through to, to Ahra and uh, the ultras, and I thought that was wonderful. And so we can forgive him for talking too long, and we can congratulate him for, for entertaining us and informing us. So thank you.